You're listening to the Carry On Friends podcast, episode 63. Welcome to the Carry On Friends podcast, where you'll be inspired and empowered to do amazing things in your personal lives, career, business, and community with your host, Carrie Ann Reed Brown. Hey there, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Carry On Friends podcast. You're listening to part two of a special series that I partnered with Jesse Owens to bring on developing, cultivating, and launching your idea. We have a lot of stuff in store to discuss, so let's get right into the episode. Everyone, welcome Jesse to part two of our series on developing your product and your idea. In the first part of the series, we talked about what's involved in developing the idea. We talked about, you know, understanding, you know, persona. So if you haven't checked out part one, I highly recommend you go back and check out part one of the series before you listen to this episode. And in this episode, we're going to talk about cultivating the idea. So we've developed it. Now we're going to nurture the idea and so it could grow. And with us is Jesse Owens. And Jesse, Jesse, why don't you tell the community a little bit about you? Well, thank you, Carrie Ann. Uh, my name is Jesse Owens. I'm a senior product owner um, at MasterCard, working on a digital payments product, uh, MasterPass, where we enable uh, safe, simple, and secure payments across all digital platforms, across mobile apps, on web, as well as through uh, wearables and uh, contactless uh, devices that you see in stores. And, you know, my role and responsibility on the product development team is to ensure that we have a, uh, a simple and secure platform that allows our merchants as well as our our, our financial institution partners to easily integrate into MasterPass to facilitate a uh, digital commerce experience. Wow. So, Jesse, I'm so glad you did that introduction because I was going to be like, Jesse, he was a product development manager at MasterCard. And I was just going to be like, imagine everything they do at MasterCard. So, I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> so you are, you went into it and, and thanks for, for sharing all that you do. And um, that's important because you are sharing with us what really goes into developing an idea, cultivating an idea, and then launching that for the market or to your audience or to your customers. And um, this is something that the audience has been asking for. And I'm so happy that you're on the show to give us all this good, good information. So um, so let's let's dive into it. We're in part two and we're cultivating the idea. So what's happening in this phase of the product development cycle? Okay. Uh, so just to recap, um, once we've identified a problem or a potential area of opportunity to solve, we develop in a hypothesis, conduct an experiment, we validate it, and then we have a look at the results to decide on whether or not to move forward on the idea. Then next, we start to build a framework around how do we monetize this idea or problem that we see in our space. Then next, we'll, we'll start thinking about what is our target customer segment, um, which we talked about um, in the last podcast. Um, and so now, once we've sort of established that and we have a, a solid framework around our business, we want to start thinking about the design. And so we, when, when we're talking about design, we're talking about the actual experience we want to create 
for our consumers. And so before we actually like get into the design, I think it's very important that we spend some time and really delve into the actual, the psychology around product design. And this is product design of everything that we interact with. Think about door handles. Think about when you're, when you're riding the train, the metro, um, thinking about chairs, cups. These all have very explicit and implicit design decisions around those objects and products. And so all of those products and objects that I'm alluding to aligns with the same principles that someone that actually manufactured these products had to have some key design principles in place in order to build out how a consumer or a user would interact with this object and or product. And a book I would highly encourage uh, the listeners to to read is a book by Don Norman, um, and it's a book called The Design of Everyday Things. And so, really, he, he's a he's a renowned uh, industrial designer, and and some of his uh, his teachings really permeates across the design community, um, and also it, it's reflective in product design. So bear with me, and I'll actually go into some of the principles and how it's actually visible in actual digital products that we interact with on a daily basis. You know what, Jesse? You yeah. that's you said that, and automatically. So I read this book called "Be Our Guest," um, mm-hmm. and it's about Disney. And it really went into, I can't remember exactly which item, but it really goes into how Disney pays very close attention and detail to certain things. So the door handles in the hotel rooms, I can't remember the specific design, but they the, the handles when you go into the door, certain parts of the, the, the resort are designed in this particular way that when people touch it there, it's part of the whole experience. So it's just, uh-huh. it's just very interesting. Like they have, they have all these water um, falls or, or, or things all over. It's a really good book. And I, it's really part of understanding what you're saying, the customer psychology, because I think Disney does a really good job of, you know, paying attention to, you know, all the five senses when they are um, rolling out their different services. So thanks for sharing. And that book was by Don Norman. That's correct. Okay. Cool. Thank you. And speaking about the five senses, there's actually five principles that Don Norman actually speaks on. And they're affordances, signifiers, mappings, feedback, and constraints. And so affordances is essentially it creates a relationship between the product and consumer. So an affordance, think about Instagram. Um, an affordance would be a filter. So the filter of affords the consumer the the opportunity of filtering the photos to create better imaging and to add in different effects to the photo that would resonate to their followers and those who want to consume or to view their pictures. The same would go for a chair a chair with legs. The the legs affords the consumer to sit upright and balance. And so that really creates the relationship in your product. So when you think about your product design, think about what are things that you're going to afford your user to do. And and really, you want to frame that around some of your core features around your product. Next is signifiers. Um, signifiers is your ability to really emulate certain things that you want the user to interact with. So um, for using the the Instagram example, you know, the camera is, is a signifier of the user being able to take a picture or record a video. And so those are really key indicators on what you want to prompt the user to, to do. And so 
what you want to do around your signifiers, it needs to be well communicated. It needs to be discoverable. And so like if, if you, you look at, you know, common design patterns, because Instagram has it has it was, hasn't been the, the first um, photo sharing app. But what they were able to do is establish some design patterns that's very common now so that when users interact with Instagram, they automatically know that clicking on this camera image is going to launch a an experience where I can take a picture or record a video. So next is mapping. Um, when we're talking about mapping, we're really talking about how do we map certain elements in our product to certain functions. Really what, what I'm alluding to is uh, think about any relationship that you have with the product that you have an account with. Think about, you know, if you're investing in um, in a portfolio or if you're investing in stocks and bonds, you have what's called account settings. Um, and so typically, where would a user look for their account settings? Probably somewhere in the upper left or the upper right where you have a picture of your, your image or maybe uh, a gear to where it signifies or it creates a mapping of where to manage your account information. What this allows the, the user to do is provides recall. Presuming that you're, you know, we're, we're having a consumer that's constantly coming back to the product. If they want to edit their contact information or their profile information, they know automatically the mapping of the the entire app and know that I know how to navigate in order to edit my account information, or I know how to navigate in order to understand my uh, my uh, my rider score if I'm if I'm taking an Uber or a Lyft. So th- these are things that are very explicit. Um, when you're designing a product that you want to ensure that the user has a proper conceptual map of where to navigate to uh, certain parts of your product. Next is feedback. And this is one of my my personal pet peeves and or favorites, depending on what side of the conversation that I'm on. Feedback is really predicated on really one of the things that we take strong ownership in in the product development is hand-holding the user through the experience and not assuming that the user knows what to do at each and every step. And so you have to understand when and where to provide proper feedback loops to the consumer. And you also need to understand that during those feedback loops, what's the proper messaging and how do you want to message those? How do you want to message your consumer? Do you want to message them through SMS? Is it an app notification? Is it through email? So you need to establish those proper channels in order to notify your consumers on what is actually happening. An example of this is think about when you're ordering food on Seamless. When you get the notification that your food is being prepared, you get an SMS or maybe an email, depending on what channel you decide to select to be notified. And then you get notified that it's actually ready and it's on its way. So this is so this is really giving the user the the end the end journey of their transaction. So they get notified when the order has been placed. They get notified when the food is being prepared and they get notified when the food is on its way. And which is also good, you know, depending on the type of product that you're building, given the ETA so that the user has a proper understanding. Yeah, expe- yes, exactly. Managing expectations and they're they're able to they're able to establish a sort of a frame of when to expect this good or product. 
at their doorstep. So, but, but, yep, but yep, you're sure. mentioning that. So isn't that standard or am I the consumer expecting this? So I know everything is a consumer based world. So as mm-hmm. the consumer, I expect you to tell me when I'm, I'm about to get my stuff shipped from Amazon or whatever. So as, um, is, is, is it not commonplace then? Like? Oh no, no, it, it's definitely, it's common. It's commonplace now. So if you're developing a new product, you need to ensure that you at least you're meeting the expectations yeah. of consumers, given that there's they are feedback loops that are like embedded in these digital products now. So if you're not taking feedback into consideration in your product design and your consumer journey, then you're failing the consumer with, with not providing them the information they need in order to have the proper interpretation of what's happening in the product. Gotcha. Gotcha. And at the same time, there could be probably too many feedbacks. Yes, actually, that's a great point. And so there's, there's actually a, um, there's a great debates going on right now on going green with your product design. And so when we say going green, um, I'm sure you can imagine that Let's say that you have, you know, the average consumer has anywhere between 30 and 40 apps on their smart device, you know, and all these devices has their own KPIs and they own have their their measures of success. A lot of it is predicated around engagement. And so how would a product engage with consumers? What's the most direct way to engage? Probably through notifications. Right. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine if you have 40 plus apps on your phone and you're getting notifications on, hey, we haven't, you know, we, we've seen that you've maybe left the item in your cart and you haven't came back in a while. Or like, here's a new here's a new song from such and such artists on Spotify and SoundCloud. And these are things that creates distractions, right? And so there's there's been a lot of study on how products are built with the, the same principles of slot machines. So if you think about slot machines, when you go to the casino and you, know, you, you pull on the lever, it's the anticipation of something being rewarded to you. So a lot of those things creates that engagement and brings users back to the product. And so there's been a lot of discussions around how can we, I'll preface this by saying that with all these notifications, and I think they're well-intended, but what happens is that users become unproductive throughout the day because they're constantly going through you know, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, and they're getting notified of all of these things that aren't necessarily important through their day-to-day. So there's essentially a, a moral decision that needs to be made. I won't say needs, but I will say that considered um, when you're designing your product is when and how you want to notify your consumers because there is a sense of your everyday consumer being unproductive because they're constantly in their phone and they're kind of distracted with all the notifications. So kind of a, and just a quick segue, uh, a life hack uh, that I, that I've started doing is I turn off all my notifications mm-hmm. from all my apps except for my messages. So if you want to message me directly, then I'll respond because that's something that you're, you know, that's something personal to me and not something that's like a canned marketing campaign from a product or, you know, something that that doesn't really need my immediate response. You know, so I'm glad you brought that up because that was really my next question. So Mm -hmm. it's 
it's this balance of you you as a product developer and a consumer because we are we're always both right well you know you are both and you know to some cases most of the audience is both you mm-hmm. you want some kind of feedback i always ignore them don't ask me again type mm-hmm. thing <laughs> so right. When right. that happens as a product developer, how do you know the type of feedback that you need to make improvements? Are you just assuming that there's always going to be a small percentage of the um, users that will not ignore the message that I like what I did? And then as the product developer for people who are listening to this, who want to develop ideas, whether it's in a T-shirt or whether it's an app or whether it's a service or whatever, how do we how do we go about? going back to the first point developing or cultivating when we're not getting that critical feedback because our client or the consumer has opted out from doing something that they consider unproductive and is not worth their time right right um excellent question um so there's different mechanisms in which you can gather feedback so one method is providing feedback within the app so when we when we talk about feedback within the app have you ever used a product and you'll you'll get prompted with how would you rate this product it will essentially happen at the end of the consumer journey like we're using the seamless example i'll go i'll go order food i'll complete the checkout and then i'll get prompted with how would you rate this app? Um, you know, and really it gives like the one, the five stars. And so you can do it within the experience or you can do it. Um, that sort of, it's, it's a bit of a, a standalone, um, in terms of there's a, there's essentially an option in your account settings where you can provide feedback. So, um, it won't be something that it's disruptive to the consumer journey, but you always know that it's it's there in the event that you need to provide feedback. Um, so these are conscious decisions that you make in terms of do you want to provide the feedback loop during the journey, after the journey, or do you want to sort of embed it and it's more discreet in the experience? But you notify the consumer that that the feedback is valued and they know where to go if they want to provide that feedback. Okay. That's from a consumer perspective, but from a product perspective, you want to ensure that you at least have a solid framework of your feedback loops during the journey. So think about your core flows and think about would a consumer care of being notified if this happens. Mm-hmm. And so you you have to make a very conscious decision on how you want to notify them during the journey. Now post, let's say if you if you're launching a new feature or if you're launching a new product, you know, those those are things that, you know, you'll have to work with marketing on and decide on or if you're marketing the product yourself, you have to decide on how you want to message and how that message is going to resonate with your existing consumer base. Gotcha. All right. And so finally, there's constraints. Constraints is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, constraints allows you to provide scope and clarity to what you can and cannot support in your product. One of these things can be cultural. If, if you look at you know product pages in the U.S., it's a, a lot of white space. You look at the different topography and, and fonts and color palettes. It's very light, very, you know, kind of it's peaceful. It's inviting. Whereas you go to, you know, other locales, it's a lot of text, not much white space. And these are cultural things that we've come accustomed to, as well as when you read a, when you view a web page, um, there's analysis that's been done this, that you read web pages or you read 
in a in an F pattern from left to right. Mm -hmm. Right. And so those are like actual constraints that you'll need to consider when you're building out your product. Other things is like there are some maybe there's regulatory constraints. Going back to the investment example, if you're investing in portfolios, you know, you can only invest when the market is open. Like, say, you know, it's it's a Sunday afternoon. And if I want to place a trade, I have to wait till Monday when the market's open, because that's part of the constraints is that I can only book a trade when the market is open. And so that those are examples of constraints that you'll need to consider as you're building out your product. And really, and it, and it eases interpretation of what you can and can't do. So those are those are design principles that are core to your your design and making sure that you have that in consideration of your persona. So constraints would also be, you know, going back to the ever prevalent T-shirt example mm -hmm, yeah. would be um, these are all the sizes that I bring uh, I, mm -hmm. that I offer. Or, exactly. Uh, exactly. I, I only print in small, medium, large. I don't yes. do XL, double X or triple X okay. because, you know, that's it's cost that comes to that. Right. Right. And, or I don't sell in bulk or stuff like that. Exactly. All right, gotcha, gotcha. Mm -hmm. cool. Yep. So now we've sort of established our frame of thinking around, you know, five core design principles around affordances, signifiers, mappings, feedback loops, as well as constraints. Now it's where we're looking at the seven stages of action. When we talk about the seven stages of action, we're also we're taking examples from the Don Norman book, The Design of Everyday Things, where we look at how the human actually interprets tasks and actions. So uh, an example that uh, we can look at is like, why, why do we do things, you know? And like, why do we, what, or what causes us to, to do things? An example would be, you know, if I'm a tourist, I decide to, I decide to take a picture of, you know, a, a building or a landmark. What causes us to do those sort of things? And this is this is really relevant to any task that we decide to do for the day. Um, it's really two things. It's it's a it's a wave of execution, and then there's a process of evaluation. And what we're what we're looking at is first establishing a goal, and then going through the different phases of the execution and evaluation process to completing that goal. One of the examples that I like to allude to since I just uh, I just recently acquired a, a Amazon Echo, mm -hmm. one of my goals is to set an alarm clock. I'm oh, sorry, set, set my alarm to go off um, at six in the morning. That's my goal. So there's, there's a plan phase, there's a specify phase, there's perform, there's perceive, interpret, and compare. Right. And so when we plan, I know that I have my my echo on my dresser and, and it's waiting for a command. This specifies like I understand that by giving a command to echo, it will set my alarm. And so the perform task is I actually give the command to my echo to set my alarm at, at 6 a.m. And then this is where the, the feedback loop comes into play is that once I perform the task, I get the feedback from the echo that my alarm has been set. And then the next phase is interpret where, so I get the feedback saying that my alarm has been set, but I'll interpret it based off of if my alarm actually goes off at six. Mm -hmm. And then I compare the results and I decide whether or not it's a positive or negative experience. Mm -hmm. And so I'll just pause, give the listeners some time just to wrap their minds around that. And you, I mean, this, you've, yeah. la you've laid it out this way, but it's happening in like seconds. Exactly. Or milliseconds. Yeah. And, and these are... And this is really core to 
kind of my next topic after this where we'll start talking about you know the behaviors of consumers as they're interacting with products and what we're talking about here is a is an experience where you establish a goal and then you go through these different phases of cognition and your when you're using a product and if there's any disruption in that experience that causes the consumer to drop off not use the product anymore write a bad review either tweet at a product um you know these are things that designers have in place or they're they're very mindful of these different layers in the flow that can disrupt the consumer journey and really what we're talking about is the journey of the execution as well as the evaluation phase for a consumer so the first step plan specify perform would that part be the, the the execution phase and then the evaluation would be the last, you know? The- oh, right. So the execution would be the plan, specify and perform. Mm-hmm. And evaluation will be the compare, interpret and perceive. Mm-hmm. And then based off of the results of that, you'll know whether or not you have a, a seamless consumer journey. I mean, this makes sense. I mean, breaking it out, it just seems like it's a lot. But we are we are doing this every time we interact with a product. Exactly. Yes. Yep. Yep. Take for instance. So I'm looking for a show on my DV, my DVR Uh or um, on demand. Greenleaf just started on own network. So I missed it and I don't see it coming up in the, the schedule. So I go to my on demand because I'm expecting it to be there because Uh it's gone and my expectations with other channels is that once i've missed the episode after two days i could go on demand and watch it so i'm planning to go on demand i go and i browse through the alphabetical setup Uh to o (laughs) for own right and i go over there and um I go to Greenleaf and I do not see episode one to season two. So it did not perform the way I wanted it to perform if I were to be asked. If, and I was quite annoyed that it wasn't there. So, uh-huh. you know, my interpretation, nothing on Oprah and the channel, but my interpretation of their on-demand journey is completely different than if I went to BET and I missed an episode of Being Mary Jane and I know it's going to be on demand. So it's it's these decisions that I'm now making that now I know that going forward, I have to make sure I set my DVR for Greenleaf because I won't be able to get it on demand the way I would normally get it for other channels. Exactly. Yep. Mm. You you broke it down perfectly. Um, and then actually it ties into the three levels of processing where we talk about reflective, behavioral, and visceral emotions while using products. And so you touched on a lot, you, you touched on all three of them actually, where when we talk about reflective um, we're mainly talking about the plan and compare uh, parts of the journey. When we're reflective, we're more, it's more about conscious decision making. This is where deep understanding develops. And this is where we start to make implicit decisions on how to interact with a product or an object. Mm. Right. And so an example of this is, let's say that you're, you're booking for travel and, you know, you go to Priceline and you see one price and you feel that you could probably find this price cheaper somewhere else. So the reflective part of that journey is maybe I should look at maybe Kayak or maybe some other app that posts prices on the same destination for the same date, Mm -hmm. just so I can do some price compare. Mm -hmm. And so those are essentially your reflective emotions 
um, when you're using a product. And, and it's reflective because you know from experience that if you go to different sites and products, the likelihood of there being different prices is there's a good chance of that. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's part of your, your conscious decision making. Next is uh, behavioral. Um, these are things that are really subconscious that you don't necessarily have to think uh, how to do certain things, kind of like liking a tweet or retweeting a, a post or um, posting a picture. These are sort of learned behaviors that are subconscious or learning or walking. You know, these are things you don't necessarily consciously think about how to walk or how to like a tweet. These are things that are sort of embedded in your conceptual model um, that you've developed over time. And this role is actually one of the things that's really important when you're developing a new product. These are your subconscious responses to unexpected events. So like think about the first time you've used a product and it was clunky, it was confusing, and it just really didn't really resonate with you. Or maybe if you order food at a restaurant that you had an expectation of what it was going to taste and look like, but it didn't meet expectations. Or maybe if a song that you heard that just wasn't good at all, or if it, it was it was great and then you can't stop talking about it. These are immediate responses of what actually occurred in real time. So think about in your product design the the visceral responses that you'll receive from consumers when they're using their product and these are things when you're conducting customer interviews and you're going through sort of usability studies you want to measure and study those visceral responses from consumers because this is something that they're using for the first time and you really want to measure that in order to understand if you really have something that is really fit for your target consumers or if there's something that you need to uh, iterate over the the design. So I'm going to I'm going to pause right here because we're going through this and to someone who's saying, you know, Jesse, I just really want to design a t-shirt, a cup right, or right, something right. like why is all of that imp- this is important. This is not what I'm expecting. I'm expecting you to say, you know what? This is how you do it. This is how you plan it, design it, and I just want to sell it in the store. Why is all of this important, the five principles from the, from the designs, you just, you talked about, you know, how we do things. Why is this important in product design for things that are not tech? Because as far as I'm concerned, of course, Apple, MasterCard, all you guys need to consider this. I'm just a lowly per- solopreneur trying to get my side hustle on. Why should I <laughs> even think about this? This seems like this is just more problem than it's worth. Excellent, excellent question. The, the the rationale behind understanding these principles because these are stages and processes that each and every individual consumer goes through every day, um, and it's not and it's not necessarily tied to digital products. These are everyday products. Um, if we go with the door handle um, example, where you know sometimes if you see a, a open door handle that doesn't have a a signifier whether to push or pull, you know you're not really sure what to do. And so those those sort of principles applies to everything. And when you look at T-shirts, you 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 also want to have those same principles um, embedded in your design process when you're trying to establish product market fit, because not every design is a is a design that's really fit for your business. And you have to be very mindful of what you want to launch with, because, you know, the, the thing about this day and age is that we have choice. You know, we have choices in the products that we decide to use. 
we have choices in the products that we decide to or t-shirts we decide to purchase because there's there's a high chance that there's going to be other t-shirt printing companies that's maybe doing the same thing that I'm doing. So you need to really understand the psyche of the consumer to really understand how to message to them, what to design for them, and ultimately how to deliver products to them and create a very seamless experience for them and something that really resonates to their what they're feeling or what they expect. So even on a simpler example is I plan to go to this website. I'm looking for a specific thing, depending on how long it takes me to find it, you know, mm-hmm. that indicates the performance and feedback. How easy was it to navigate this website? Right. Now, am I coming right. back to this website? Mm-hmm. Am I going to use this website again compared to other blogs, other podcasts? And then right. it's just the right. perception. So I, I get why we're doing this. So how does this now fit into the bigger picture? Where do we go from here? So now where we go from here is once we've sort of mapped out conceptually how we want to frame our product around um, with our design principles, our sort of the feedback loops that we want to have embedded, we want to start doing some some rough sketches, rougher designs around our product. And so what we're going to talk about now is wireframing. And so wireframing is an essential. So one of one of the, the common mistakes that I've seen is for young entrepreneurs is to once they have an idea, they merely think like, oh, I need to go get an engineer and we can code it out. So one of the things with that is a engineers are expensive mm-hmm. and to iterate over a a product that has been built is more expensive than iterating over some wireframes. So think about a wireframe that you would sketch versus hiring an engineer to build a product and you're not even sure if it has product market fit yet. Okay. You know, so these are things to consider as you're building a product. So with wireframes, I think the wireframes are invaluable and it's something that we incorporate um, into our design process because it, it's cheap, it's effective, and you can do rapid iterations over uh, the design. And really what you want to do is just expressing your your concepts and your solutions. And really it just creates a framework around the consumer journey. And so the type of wireframes that you can start looking into is, as I mentioned, there's there's sketch wireframes and there's also low fidelity and high fidelity. These all have a role and a place in your product development process. And so for sketching, the, the intended audience for sketching is, you know, if you're at a small shop, you know, this is a, a sketch that you would show to marketing and sales or maybe your your designer at a larger company you know you may want to show this to you know someone who is actually impacted by this concept and so the the sketch is really intended to let's just visualize you know what what we actually want to build um and so you you'll map out your journey in such a way that you have you know all the different screens and not necessarily going into the actual details of what type of font we're going to use or color, but you're really and the, and the rationale for it is that it allows the audience to focus on the actual functionality, less on the presentation of the feature. So you want to look at how is this user going to navigate through this product, specifically around the features that you have wireframed. And what you want to do is create a storyboard of the actual journey. So user arrives at the web page, they log in. And so when they log in, what should they see after that? And then 
if it's a new feature that you want to develop, how will a user discover this new feature? Once they're in that feature, how do they navigate in order to complete specific tasks that you have built as part of that feature? So I think sketching is a really good idea and we don't do a lot of it, even in basic things, right? So let's think of um, the website, like Mm -hmm. the blog, and I'll talk about my own experience. Mm -hmm. I I like to think that I have a good sense of like what I want it to look like, how I want to feel, but that was in my head. I didn't necessarily draw boxes and you know i didn't do any of that i kind of let that happen when i had the person building it out i mean we had like a site map but i only was able to make changes once i was able to see it visually and so um wireframing probably would have allowed me to spend less time making those i mean you'll make some changes once it's live but one having that um very clear outline or frame of how i want it to flow where i want this to be would have probably made it easier right all right so I'm, i'm getting it um that for everything that we do, even if as simple as a t-shirt, I have to kind of figure out my design, figure out, you know, where I, how high I want the design up to the, the, the neckline, how low, what it'll look like. Um, I think for each phase, you have to kind of do some kind of wireframing. Right, right. Because even if you sell t-shirts, you have to make this available to the masses. And so how do you make it available to the masses? Taking it to the web or building an app. You may, may not need to apply all these principles now, but the minute you decide to scale what you're offering, you're going to have to embed these principles into whatever digital platform or digital channel you want to sell your teachers through. And I think that's key for the audience. The principles that you're getting, it doesn't mean, and for everything that we're covering, it doesn't mean that you have to do all of them all at once. Well, for for some of them, you know, but you you need to have a basic understanding because like you said, scale, if you don't understand the foundations of what's happening or what needs to happen, it's going to be much harder to scale and succeed at scaling. That's correct. All right, let's continue. All right. So, uh, so I spoke about sketching. Next is where we'll talk about low and high fidelity uh, wireframes. When I, when we speak about low fidelity, I'll be remiss if I don't mention uh, Balsamic. It's a excellent wireframing tool that doesn't require any tech skills. It helps provide uh, digital artifacts of your experience that you want to create. And I've used this a lot when I'm working with designers specifically on what sort of experience do I want to create for my end consumer. And I by no means have uh, have design skills, but I, I like to feel that I have a good conceptual understanding of how a user should navigate through a product. And so you use this as a tool to facilitate a conversation with designers so that they can use these assets to really bring the product to life with all of the transitions, the the signifiers. A lot of the design principles that we sort of talked about during this podcast, they're really responsible of bringing that to life. So when you're building out a digital product, it's I highly advise um, maybe contracting a designer or bringing on a designer full time to really bring this product to life because they're really going to be focused on the the user research, the consumer journey, and just really doing all the the tasks necessary to create a very engaging and delightful experience for your end consumer. 
So so think of think of these wireframes as collateral to negotiate what experience you want to create with your designer. Once you're able to uh, establish the the relationship with the designer on what the journey is, what they'll then create is high fidelity wireframes where you start to really see the product come to life, where you start embedding the the topography and the color palettes, and you'll you'll start seeing the actual assets that's going to be uh, a part of your product. And so what really comes out of this is a style guide. And your style guide is really your framework on how certain pieces of your product is designed, developed, and how it's constructed. So the low fidelity, if if I were to make it simple, it has to do with the functionality, which is at the core of any product. Right, right. And you'll you'll facilitate the low fidelity uh, through balsamic. That's a tool that in the design community that it's it's really the go-to for product managers, product people, um, entrepreneurs who are looking to convey the, an idea without having to get into details with Photoshop or InDesign because it's it's very technical once you get to that level, presuming that you don't have the expertise to really design the, the experience, but you, you want to capture the functionality. This, the, the low fidelity helps facilitate that conversation. And so for the high fidelity, it's more look and feel and user experience. Correct. Okay. Correct. So in the in the low fidelity, you'll you'll have like the layout of the screens, but it's very bland. You know, a lot of a lot of grays and blacks, and so there's really no distinction on call the actions or what what's going to actually be the, the design um, of those screens. But the high fidelity, that's when you actually get into the details of at the pixel level where things are going to be positioned, how is it going to function, like is it above the fold, below the fold. These are things that are considered when you're doing the high fidelity wireframes. So uh, in the functionality, would that be what people generally refer to as UI user interface? That's correct. Okay. And then the UX would be under the high fidelity because it's the experience. Correct. Okay. Cool. Correct. All right. I'm I'm getting my my stuff clarified. Now I see Mm -hmm. a bigger picture. Right. Right. This is when I, I personally get excited during this particular process is when you essentially use your low fidelity, you'll give it to someone who can create an experience. And then now it's, all right, does this really have market fit or how can we put this in the hands of a customer? Right? And so, you know, some tools that uh, that I've used and that's also used in the design community is called Envision. Envision is a prototyping tool that allows you to sort of create a clickable prototype of your design. So you don't have to write any code on the back end, but you can still get your validations early on. The key tenets around these principles is doing early validations so that you don't have to make the expensive upfront investment of getting an engineer or actually building the product before you can really understand whether or not this product has market fit. All right. So we're, we're kind of in the tech space, but how is this product uh, or this process applicable to a non-tech? Because I'm thinking apps and stuff when you're thinking Envision and the prototype, et cetera. Right, right. How could we apply this to a non-technical product? Let's go back to the ever faithful t-shirt because, right, you know. Right, Okay. So if we're going with the t-shirt example, are we looking to create a website for the t-shirts? So what you'll want to do is create a, a wireframe of the website in which a consumer will purchase these t-shirts from and really just navigating that journey. And you'll essentially, you'll wireframe 
your essentially your your storyboard, then that will then get translated into a high fidelity wireframe. And now what you'll try to understand is if I were to create a prototype of this website without writing any code, um, I want to put this in the hands of an actual consumer so that I can understand, A, is the experience that I created, is it something that really resonates or is it something that I need to iterate and maybe improve some particular parts of the flow? Um, maybe I need to incorporate you know, some signifiers or maybe some feedback loops that I didn't have in place because a consumer was confused on what to do next. Got it. So for t-shirts, it could be wireframing and designing the website and having someone walk through the, the, the ordering process just to kind of get the, an idea of, you know, what the experience is like to just to, to interact with the website, decide to buy the product. We've decided to plan, we execute, we do the feedback and then getting that feedback and then making improvements throughout that process. That's correct. Okay. All right, cool. I always have to go back to the simple because I want to make sure it, so far I'm seeing how it's applicable to, to non-tech stuff other than apps, but I just, sometimes it's just easier to hear it apply to, you know, the way that we just did it with the t-shirts. I'm always going to come up, come back to this t-shirt thing. Oh no, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and these are, these are design principles that are, uh, that you'll see relevant in products like Airbnb facebook um google products you'll you'll once you develop an understanding of these principles you'll start to look at products differently mm. and you'll you'll you can give your your own critiques on particular parts of the flow that either worked really well or left you confused and not really sure of what actually happened gotcha it's like when i worked at the dentist office and then i came back and i saw i started noticing everyone's teeth it was just like oh <laughs> <laughs> no, it's right, true. Right. It's like once you once you're in that space, you start noticing everything. So, all right. So now we've gone through. We, um, Envision is a tool you've mentioned, and we're gonna ask ourselves from interacting with the prototype: is the experience what we want the customer to experience in the journey? And if not, we just iterate. That's correct. Okay. What I'll what I'll touch on just to sort of round out the the cultivating aspect of product design is customer interviews. Customer interviews is essential um, when you're trying to understand the usability of your product and really product market fit. So taking going back from you establish a hypothesis, you develop a business model around it, you've understood the, the design principles you want to embed in your, uh, in your consumer journey, uh, you, you wireframe the experience, and now you've created a prototype. What you now want to start doing is actually talking to people, talking to consumers who would actually use your product and start collecting feedback. I know it sounds like very onerous and expensive, but it's extremely valuable when you're developing a product for the first time because it does a couple of things for you. It, it creates early validation of your product, and then it, it, it allows you to make uh, decisions on where to go next. Um, where in regards to maybe new features or if you need to refine certain aspects of your product, these interviews are extremely important. Maybe a question that comes up is, well, who do I actually interview? Well, when you once you have established a user persona, you want to interview those who actually aligns with with that user persona. And so these can be actually be sourced either through your own network or you can be done through an agency 
or you can it, it could be done through your followers. You know, if you look at your your social media, you can create a community of test users of your product. Um, and so, I, I personally like to use that model um, when testing um, or when I'm doing my own experiments or my own user testing or just collecting just general data uh, around just our our daily habits. So these are things that you need to incorporate as part of your your process. And so once you've done that. You're, you're able to have an interview with your, your target persona. And really the, the, the thing that you want to ensure is that you're, you're not testing them, you're actually testing the product, right? And so what you want to do is establish, just create a conversation, you know, really give some context as far as what you're testing and why you're actually going through this process of going through customer interviews and prototyping and why they're actually giving them some, some rationale of why they're, why they're present. Um, and these are one-on-one interviews because um, I find that these are actually it's more impactful versus like a focus group. Um, and I've I've done I've done focus groups and one-on-one interviews. Focus groups are are good, but you're unable to uh, get that the the qualitative feedback as you would like because one-on-one interviews is more uh, I think it's more intuitive and in, in, in my opinion because in focus groups you get a lot of opinions and you're you don't really get the the real feedback because you're unable to view how the user is actually navigating through the product right um so also, i think there's just this issue of groupthink that comes in like right people, right yeah, was, <laughs> yeah, yeah so, you know someone may not want to say something because someone else kind of said it so they're like yeah yeah, yeah, yeah what they said versus exactly one-on-one Ex- is more like no one's judging me it's just you i could say i could speak my mind and say whatever. So I get it. I, I think I'd like one-on-one better too. Right. So um, so you're facilitating a conversation and really what you want to establish is some key tasks that you want the user to complete. So when we going back to the, the stages of execution and evaluation, you want to create specific goals that you want the user to perform. And so not giving them any instructions on how to use the product, you, you essentially put the, the prototype in their hands and let them navigate. And what you'll do is you'll, you'll see them navigating and, and asking them to sort of speak out loud as they're using the product so that you can get some qualitative insights into how the user is perceiving the product and how they're navigating, what things are difficult, um, what, what things made sense, what what are some of the things that we could incorporate in the future? So these are things that you want to facilitate during that interview to allow the consumer, A, to be comfortable and to speak freely about the product. Okay. And so this could work um, for the going online to buy my T-shirts, which is like that, yep. going through the website. Oh, here, I want you to go to this website and buy a t-shirt so have them go through the process and we're sitting and watching them do this process that's correct all right cool all right that's correct right and then you'll and really during this you're impartial to the feedback um you're you're really just collecting information um and sometimes you'll ask clarifying questions on if they felt that there is a friction in a particular flow you'll want to ask clarifying questions like what made this complex or what made this difficult, you know, what actually helped you navigating to ordering this t-shirt. So those are things that you just want to clarify during that, during that process. All right. 
So we've gone to the customer interview. What's our next step? So based off of the feedback, you either decide that, you know, there's probably some more work that we need to do on our prototype or we can move forward with the actual development of the product, which is exciting as well, because now you've you've gone through this this journey and you've you've come to the, the, the realization that you actually have product market fit and the product is in a state where we validated the usability of it. And we're, we're happy with the results that we got from the customer interviews. And now we can actually move forward with the actual development of the product. You know, I'm here, I'm thinking, boy, for the person who's listening to this, who's like, you know, Carrie, I really and truly just wanted to just put up my little website and sell a bag or two. Why do I have to go through all of this? I don't want to sell it. I mean, what do we say to that person who's thinking, gosh, this is so overwhelming. I really didn't expect all of this to come out. And we're just in part two of a three-part series. Like, what do you have to say to that? Because we've gone through a lot of information. And what do you say to someone who's thinking this is a lot I wasn't expecting it I'm not doing it or I don't want to even bother with my idea anymore (laughs) well this isn't intended to uh, scare anyone off or to create anxiety Um, these are these are uh, concepts and frameworks to run a better product if you if you make a conscious decision to build a product whether it's a physical or digital product these are things that You'll need to embed into your into your workflow in order to ensure a successful product because you know we're all investing time, energy, resources to create something for a community. And so what we want to do is enable each and every entrepreneur with the tools to a create a, a, a solid business model around their product, but also creating a great experience because design is such a focal point. In the product development process, you want to leverage some of the concepts and tools that uh, the leading companies in design incorporate. Um, and so because these are the expectations that consumers have developed over time um, since the emergence of our, our pocket computers um, and, and apps. So these are things that even small companies need to consider because these are expectations that a consumers expect because things are very immediate and it's real time. And these are things that you'll want to understand these consumer journeys in order to build a successful product. Thanks for sharing that because more and more from a marketing perspective, the consumer drives everything. There's so many businesses talking to the same group of people for different products because, you know, if we're a Venn diagram, we all have overlapping interest you know you have parents mm-hmm. over here you have parents who who are entrepreneurs and they also work a full-time job there's so many different things and even within parents like what kind of parent are you do you have a child under the age of 18 you know do you have a child under the age of 12 yeah like all these different segments that you know this one title of parent you then fall to and if you have multiple children then you have different um, businesses trying to get your attention based on the kids you have and the age group they're in. So it's really important to, um, because as a consumer, we connect to um, products and businesses that just really feels easy for us, organic. And it's just, they just make us feel like, oh, this is a no brainer. I just really want to use that because it's so, it's like breathing. It's just so part of my life. 
Right. So, and for us, and, and, and from a future standpoint, for entrepreneurs, budding entrepreneurs to survive, we have to start thinking of these things because, you know, we're, we're in a gig economy or a freelance economy, whichever you want to call it, where seriously globalization so we we have to make sure we have all the tools in our arsenal to help us succeed so we're going to continue to give you the information but it'll apply because i'm sitting here and i'm starting to think like "Mm." i really want to go and implement these because i see how they could improve a lot of things that you know i'm trying to do even when i do previous episodes um i'll say hey if you like it do a rating and review and i'm like is that even effective to do that in the podcast so i'm thinking of how to apply these principles in something so simple as saying, hey, go do a rating and review in iTunes. You know, what is there? Because I have no idea what the experience of the listener is just to go into iTunes to do a rating and review. So it's it's really one of those things to kind of take a step back, digest the, the information in these the series, probably have to do a second listen and apply it to, you know, see how it applies to different initiatives. So enough of me rambling. So because consumer expectations, um, we've we've done the interview, we we now decide whether we go back and we do some improvements or we're ready for some kind of launch. Yes, that is correct. All right. So where, where do we go after that? Are we ready to launch yet? Or no, not quite? Well, I mean, you'll be ready to develop. Um, and so now that that's when we'll go into the, the next segment when we're actually going through the actual launch process where we uh, we try to define what our MVP is, understand the market for the product, as well as we want to establish some KPIs, key performance indicators for success of your product when you <clears throat> for post-launch. So metrics is something that's very near and dear to me, as well as if you're a entrepreneur or a product person, you you should care about metrics that are core to your product. And and so we'll actually get into those details um, as far as what metrics you want to establish and how to measure them and how that actually ties into the overall success of your product. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So we we just ended the second phase of the product development series. And the third phase will be launching the idea. Now, we really want to hear from you what you're thinking, what questions you want answered. And we'll try to get those questions in and answered in an episode. So please be sure to send us a tweet at Carry On Friends. Jesse is also on Twitter at... Jesse E. Owens, is, is it Jesse E. Owens or is it just Jesse Owens and two I? Oh, Jesse E. Owens, two eyes. Two eyes, yes. yes. I'll make sure I put all of that in the show notes and the recap on the blog. We definitely want to hear from you, want to get some feedback. We're doing this feedback loop <laughs> as to how you are um, interacting with the, the series. What are your thoughts? And um, are we managing your expectations? Um, we'd love to hear from you. You could also send us an email if you don't want to have your information. You know, you want to send us an email on the side because you don't want everybody to see your question. So hello at Carry On Friends. And Jesse and I will definitely get back to you and answer your questions. But Thank you for listening. As always, Jesse, you know, always some good information here. I can't wait to apply some of this. And until the next episode in the series, walk good.
Okay, friends, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Carry On Friends podcast. For a recap of this episode and other great articles, please visit the blog at www.carryonfriends.com. That's C-A-R-R-Y-O-N-F-R-I-E-N-D-S dot com. You've been listening to Carry On Friends, a show about the Caribbean American experience produced by Breadfruit Media. We post a new episode every two weeks on Tuesday. And if you're looking to learn more, buy our merch, or sign up for a newsletter, check out carryonfriends.com. Or find us on all social media platforms at Carry On Friends.